Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone here. Um, you know, it's just, we have a, obviously we have a heavy topic today talking about spiritual warfare, but uh, before we get into that, it was just awesome being by the child check-in here, just seeing some of the families coming back for the first time. It's just really good to see faces we love and miss, so that's awesome, and good for all of you to be here with us online as well. So today, if you have your Bible with you, go to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So I'm just going to kind of prep you, so I... Today, I'm going to need about five minutes more than normal, so we got, this is a heavy topic, and there's a lot that goes with this, so um, I usually go about 35 minutes, it might be a little pushing 40, but we'll get you out as soon as we can, but really want to make sure we cover this, because this is a very important issue. Talk about spiritual warfare today, and you know, there's a lot of different ideas about spiritual warfare, people come at it from different angles, and a lot of you, when we, you know, polled our church family for questions, a lot of your questions had to do with spiritual warfare, and, you know, questions like, what, what is spiritual warfare, or questions like, uh, does spiritual warfare, does this still happen today? Because, you know, we go back to Bible times, and we see Jesus casting out demons, and we see the Apostle Paul cast out demons, and we see, you know, demonic activity in the Old Testament, but does this still happen today? So we're going to look at that. And then we're also going to look at the question some of you asked was, how do we, how do, we do spiritual warfare? How do, we, how do we do this? How do we fight? So we're going to try to answer all three of those questions in one session, right? So we're going to, we're going to dive right in and tackle it. Um, just a few things. This is, a, again, this is a very heavy, a very critical topic for us to talk about. I also believe that today, um, you know, God's Word is really going to impact many of you powerfully, uh, for those of you that are cognitive-minded, you know, how, how many of you are more cognitive? You're not really emotive. You think more analytically and rationally. How many of you got? All right, good. I think you're going to enjoy today. I think today's going to challenge you because we're going to talk about some theological concepts that aren't, you know, always talked about when, in terms of spiritual warfare. <clears throat> but it's also for those of you who are more emotive. You, you know, you, you may analyze some, but you're more to the, the emotional side of things. Any, any folks like that? Yeah, maybe you're not feeling it yet, so you're not putting your hand up yet. I got it. Uh, it's all good. Uh, I think this is going to be impactful for you, too, because as we talk about this truth of Scripture, um, I think it's also going to really tug at your heartstrings about where we are and, and how are we engaging in this, and what are, we, what are we doing about the warfare that's raging on every single day? What's, what's our part in that? And so hopefully this is going to impact all of you in powerful ways. And so my prayer is that you really leave today saying, well, I really encountered the Lord today. And so that's, that's our goal every Sunday, every time we get together for worship. But really want you to encounter the person of Christ, the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life today as we tackle this very critical concept. So Ephesians chapter 6. So let's look at today, we're going to look at this first question um, just what is it? What is spiritual warfare? So we're going to be Ephesians 6 just uh, briefly here this morning. So I'm going to ask you to please stand and honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 10 through 13 just to get us going. Uh, we're going to bounce around a lot of different scriptures today. Um, but we're staying on this theme of, of spiritual warfare. So Apostle Paul is writing this church in Corinth who is experiencing a lot of warfare, a lot of struggle, a lot of battles going on. And so Paul writes this. He says, finally... Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning in humility. Lord, first of all, just, just recognizing who you are. You are the, you're the king of the universe. You are the, the Lord God Almighty. You are crowned with many crowns. You are great. You are awesome. And Lord, it is, it is our privilege to be able to worship you, to be able to gather like this, to learn more about you. But most importantly, it is just a privilege and honor just to be able to be in your presence, that you are here with us, that you would speak to us, that you would love us, that you would rescue us. But Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity. And Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would just control this time and your sovereignty, use this to speak to all of our hearts wherever we're at. Lord, I know that there's some here, some watching that aren't in a relationship with you yet, that they're just kind of maybe curious or maybe they've had some teaching about religion in the past, but they never developed a, a relationship with you through faith and through repentance and through following you. So Jesus, I pray that this morning, uh, that for some here, some watching, this would be the day of salvation, that you would rescue, you would remove the blinders from our eyes that are hindering us from understanding and embracing the gospel. So Lord, I pray for that supernatural rebirth, that act that only you can do in our lives, that that would happen today. God, I also pray for those here who are born again, who are your followers, that God, today you would stir us, you would, you would God, just impact our mind and how we think about spiritual warfare. You would stir our hearts and our engagement in spiritual warfare, just helping us to realize what all it encompasses so, God, we could be highly impactful in your rescue project for others. So, God, we just want to lay this time at your feet, use it for your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So what is spiritual warfare? Just, just you know, start off with a few definitions um, you know, first is, it's the battle or conflict. We see Paul use that term here, uh, our battle, our struggle. Some, some of your translations may have the word struggle. Our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So it's a struggle, it's a battle. Uh, it's not a flesh on flesh. So, you know, if this past week, those of you who are married, how many of you had a little marriage moment that wasn't your shiniest moment, a little conflict, a little tension? Anybody? All right. There's a few honest people in here. Uh, yeah, so, you know, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. But, man, we, we do that, though, right? We vilify the other person. You know, in the political arena, we're having a conversation with someone who's the opposite party of you, and you know, you, you, we tend to vilify the person. But our struggle's not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual war. So what it is, it's a battle of conflict between two opposing wills, the will of God and those who follow him, so that's us, that's the angelic realm, etc. And then the opposite, the opposing will of Satan and his minions. Now let's just let's be clear. So when, again, when we approach the spiritual warfare, different, different people, different ideologies have different views. Uh, a very common view, which is false, but it's a very common view of good and evil, is really more of the Eastern mysticism view. You see like in Star Wars, got any Star Wars fans? 
a few, okay? Pray for those of you that aren't. No, uh, but Star Wars, so Star Wars deals a lot in Eastern mysticism, the force, right? The force, you have the dark side, you have the light side, and the way it's pitched in, in a lot of Eastern religions is dualism, that good and evil are equal but opposite opposing forces. That is not true. According to the biblical worldview, according to Scripture, God is all-powerful. Satan is not, right? God is omniscient, which means he knows all. Satan is not, right? God is omnipresent. He's anywhere he chooses to be at the same moment. Satan is not. God is omnipotent. Satan is not. So it's not dualism. It's different. But we'll, we'll unpack that as we go. So, but there's this conflict between these two opposing wills that affects so, so much. Uh, one author named Clinton Arnold, he writes this. He says, spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians. Whether we want to think about it or not, the truth is that we all face supernatural opposition as we set out to live the Christian life. There is virtually no part of our existence over which the evil one does not want to maintain or reassert his unhealthy and perverse influence. Conversely, Jesus longs to reign as Lord over every area of our lives. This is the locus of intense struggle for all believers, and it is a power struggle. To which kingdom and source of power do we yield? Do you yield? So that is kind of a big picture view of spiritual warfare. It impacts every aspect of our life, and we've got to understand that this warfare includes all of your relationships, Satan wants to destroy everything about us, right? Your marriage, your friendships, your relationship and your faith. Your, uh, he wants to destroy your reputation. He wants to destroy your worldview. He wants to destroy your thought processes. Everything about us, he wants to annihilate. He hates you, right? But God loves us. And God is all-powerful. God is almighty. So that's kind of a feel of warfare. So we'll unpack these more as we go. Second question is, does this warfare still happen today? Does it still happen? You know, is this, is this, is this stuff real? A simple bottom line up front? Yes, it still happens today. It is still real. So if you go to Old Testament times, you see a lot of spiritual warfare. You know, you have the incredible historical events I love to read about. One of my favorites in scriptures is where Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel, and you know, he's, he's one of the only prophets left. So he thinks, God said there's 7,000 other people who are faithful to him at the time, but Elijah felt like he was the only one. But he goes to Mount Carmel, and he faces off with 400 priests of this false god called Baal. And so Elijah kind of throws down the gauntlet. It's a great moment. If you haven't read this, you totally should read it. But uh, so Elijah throws down the gauntlet and says, okay, we're going we're gonna to nail this down today. Whose God is the real God? And so he says, here's what we're going to do. Each of you are going to build your altar. I'm going to build my altar. We'll have a sacrifice there. And whichever God consumes the offering, that's the real God. And so he says, and you guys, Elijah says, you guys can actually go first. So these 400 prophets of Baal, they prepare their altar, they prepare their animal and all that, they sacrifice it, and then they start praying to Baal for him to come down and consume the sacrifice. This is a great story. And so they're walking around and, and there's nothing happening. And Elijah, this guy who's seemingly all by himself, of course we know God's with him, he's over there, he's mocking them. He's like, Maybe you're not praying loud enough. Maybe Baal's asleep. You know, just all these funny things. 
Well, then these guys, they start cutting themselves. There's all this self-mutilation stuff that's going on. We'll, again, we'll talk about that in a minute. But just, oh, it's just awful. And then finally they give up. Nothing's happened. And so Elijah, with simple prayers, just probably my, my paraphrase, God, just do your thing. Fire consumes it. And you know, first he prepared by putting a lot of extra water around. It's all consumed. The stone, the water, the animal, everything's ashes. God is the God. That's spiritual warfare, and God showed off his glory there. It's a great story. Then you get to the New Testament. We see Jesus. Jesus goes casting out these demons, and he, people are in awe of his power, his authority, and his might. And whenever Jesus cast out demons, these demons were manifesting themselves through people in different ways. And so here's just some ways we see the demons manifest themselves in, during, in the four Gospels. You see, one time with supernatural strength, so Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, he, he goes across the Sea of Galilee. He's in this area called the Gadarenes, and there's this demon guy. It's called the demoniac in some translations. And he's, he's, uh, he's in the tomb. Well, he lives around the tombs, and just a weird guy, right? But, but he has supernatural strength. It says how he, they would often chain him and bind him, and he would just break the shackles off because he had supernatural strength because of the demons uh, that were possessing him. We see self-induced harm. That is often a manifestation of demonic activity. Like with the prophets of Baal, they would walk around cutting themselves in the Old Testament. This same demoniac here in the tombs, he would often go around, he would be cutting himself. That's often self-mutilation, self-harm is often a, a manifestation of demon oppression. And sometimes in extreme cases, even demon possession. It happens because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're image bearers of God. Amen. And so that is why it is not godly to do any harm to any image bearer, someone else or myself, because I bear the image, I bear the mark of the creator of the universe. And so what's done to me, what's done to you, is done to the image of God. And so that's why that is such a precious, sacred, you know, reality. So you are, in essence, you are sacred, you are priceless, because you bear the image of the creator of the universe. So important. Mental illness. We see um, several times in the, in the Gospels that some, somebody's just out of their mind. This demoniac was out of his mind and other examples in the Gospels of people just being kind of out of their mind um, as a result of demon possession and demonic activity. Now, that doesn't mean that mental illness is always demonized, right? It's not always. It's a real illness, but sometimes in Scripture we see, in modern day, I have no doubt that sometimes mental illness can be demonic. Um, next is deafness and muteness. Uh, we see Jesus cast a demon out of a deaf and mute guy, and as soon as the demon leaves, the guy can hear and talk. So we see here the manifestation was deafness. Now again, that doesn't mean all of us hard of hearing, because I got my hearing aids on right now. That doesn't mean I'm possessed with a demon, right? Just sometimes this old worn out fallen body just stops working like it's supposed to. Well, but here in this case, that was an example. Convulsions. There's one example of a, of a young man who was convulsing and Jesus cast the demon out and the man stopped convulsing. We see supernatural insight. Every time that the demons talk in the Gospels, they have a much higher view of Jesus than the people around them did. Every single time, the first time we see this in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes into a synagogue and he casts evil spirits out of them. And the evil spirit said, what have we to do with you, the son of the most High God. They had no doubt who Jesus was. They knew exactly that he's the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And they trembled and they knew who he was. They knew 
who they were in relation to him. In fact, when Jesus gets to the Gadarenes, this demoniac that we talked about with supernatural strength and out of his mind and all this, the first thing he does when he sees Jesus is he runs towards Jesus, falls at his feet, and the Bible says that then he worshiped Jesus. That doesn't mean he cried in love and adoration. Worship is an appropriate response to the presence of God. Well, that demon's appropriate response was fear and terror, and that's how he responded. So, but they had supernatural insight. They know, know who Jesus is. So, there's just some things that happen when the demons come into face-to-face with Christ, and it happened in the Gospels. Now, some might say that spiritual warfare ended after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, because at the cross, Jesus defeats Satan. He defeats the enemy, so war should be over, right? And some will cite this passage, which is a great passage, Colossians 2, Paul says, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased that certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us, opposed to us, and has taken out of the way by nailing it to the cross. It goes on and says, in triumph over him by him. So there's that, but the issue with the thought that maybe spiritual warfare ended at the cross is that there's so much scripture about spiritual warfare after the cross, right? You get to the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter. In fact, you see, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, says, be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, right, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking or looking for anyone he can devour. Does that sound like it's over, that we're safe? No, it's not, it's still going on, right? You see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talk about spiritual warfare. Our warfare is the church. He says, although we are walking in the flesh, we do not wage war in a fleshly way. Since the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the destruction or the demolition of strongholds. And it goes on, it says, so we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So it talks about, here Paul talks about our warfare and how he wages that warfare. And then 2 Corinthians 4, gosh, this is so practical. In fact, our gospel, he says, is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. That means those who have not trusted in Christ yet. Regarding them, the God of this age, that's a reference to Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. This is all warfare. You know, Denise mentioned in her testimony, you know, the, the time when she was studying, reading the Quran for her missions class and how, you know, she was, felt like maybe this was the same religion, had to saw the same characters, but once her sister prayed for her and claimed the blood of Jesus and prayed for her to have clarity, that the fog lifted, the veil was removed. She saw clearly. Satan can mess with their minds and, and with the blinders so we don't see the truth. So yes, it happens today. Just a quick story. My very first mission trip I ever went on, I was 26 years old, and um, I was still in the Army at the time, but uh, I had kind of developed a friendship with a guy who helped churches take short-term mission trips. His name's Craig Miller. Craig actually came here probably five or six years ago for one of our mission days. 
Uh, well, Craig, he, Craig's with Jesus now. He passed away. But Craig, he was, took me on this trip to Belize along with a, some other people on the team. And so we were down in the jungle of Belize. Anybody ever been to Belize? I've had a couple of you first serve. You've been to Belize? Man, it's a beautiful place. Beautiful. Down in Central America. So anyway, we, uh, we, we went into the thick of the jungle and some of the villages there. And it was a great time. But we were inviting people, talking about gospel, talking about the gospel, having gospel conversations. A lot of the people there had never heard of Jesus. They're very tribal, very animistic, you know, very voodoo, kind of sorcery, witchcraft kind of, kind of culture. <clears throat> so we talked about Jesus a lot. And we met the witch doctor of the whole area. So this witch doctor, she was always very nice to us. She was very kind. She listened to what we had to say. We told her about the gospel. We shared our testimonies with her. And uh, you know, she was very kind and gracious. Her son was also growing in interest about the gospel. Well, everything was going to crescendo in this week for a big kind of crusade where all we asked all the neighboring villages to come to this kind of this central village. In the middle of this village, they had like a big concrete slab that kind of served like the talking space. So if anybody came that had something to say, they would go stand on this concrete slab and tell these villages that we gather in this pretty small field where about a thousand people could, could fit, you know. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to have people come. He's going to, you know, have we had something to say, the gospel, right? So we're going to have people come and listen and all that sort of thing. So that night came and there's like, sure enough, 800, 900 people came from villages all around and they sat in this field and we began to just take turns sharing the gospel. Well, this, this witch doctor had been so kind to us and hospitable and gracious, she was a different lady. She was over here screaming in her native language. She was screaming and yelling at us. She was over sacrificing chickens and, you know, hexing us and cursing us for what we were doing. So this is all going on while we're up here preaching. So, you know, some of you sometimes that have babies in here, you think you feel bad when the baby screams, hey, you have heard nothing to your hair. Uh, a mad voodoo witch lady screaming at you while you're trying to talk about Jesus, right? So she's over there, and she's just, I mean, yelling. It was just crazy, just, she was, she was running up and down. I mean, not herself. Well, while my buddy, his name's Brad, was preaching, Craig, our leader, just finally went over and looked at her, and she said, in the name of Jesus, be quiet. He shut it like that. And right after that, her son gave his life to Jesus. And so did many other people in the crowd. It was an incredible moment. But that was warfare. That was not the same lady we had met and had conversations with who had been so gracious and kind. It was different. That was warfare. That was battle. Because there were souls at stake for the gospel's sake. So, yes, it happens today. So how do we do it? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? What's our, what's our process? What's our weapons or tools? What do we have to think about? Well, let's first start with this. The first thing we must have is a biblical mindset. We must engage spiritual warfare with a biblical mindset. And so what's some key truths here we've got to consider? First is that God is sovereign even over spiritual warfare. This is so when you, when you start reading a lot of spiritual warfare books, even within Christianity, you have kind of different thoughts here, right? Um, you know, so some of these thoughts are that, that Satan can just attack you randomly anytime. Um, but that doesn't take into account God's sovereignty. So I want to be careful here. We want to approach this biblically. So God is sovereign. We believe God is sovereign. And that includes he is sovereign even over the spiritual warfare. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. 
Let's look at some implications of God being sovereign in spiritual warfare over spiritual warfare. And for those of you that have read about spiritual warfare, hopefully this will be challenging you or maybe something you hadn't thought about before. You may have thought about this many times and be way ahead of me. It's all good. So first, implications of God being sovereign in warfare is that God is the one that should be focused on. The focus should be on God in the midst of the attack if he is, oh, sorry, my notes back there is ahead. God has a greater purpose in spiritual warfare. There you go. God has a greater purpose. So it's not just Satan's purpose you're worried about. It's God's purpose that you're worried about. Like, for example, we see in the New Testament, Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. And, you know, he, he prays and he tries to get Peter, James, and John to pray with him. And he says, this is the hour of darkness, right? And so it, it's, it's warfare. It's heavy. I mean, this is a dark, dark moment. And we see that Jesus tells his disciples, see this in Luke 23, he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And that word ask implies in the Greek language, he successfully asked. So Satan had gotten permission to do this stuff to Peter and the disciples. And sure enough, on the back side of this, we see after Jesus is resurrected in John chapter 21, Jesus sits down with Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times that fateful night, right? So three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And so it's this process of restoring Peter, right? So in this whole time, why did God allow Satan to sift the disciples like wheat? Because he had a greater purpose. He was going to use their failure to strengthen their character, to grow them, prepare them for what he's got for them. So it was all about God's purpose, not about Satan's ploy. You see, the, the, the focus shifts there. That's kind of this next point. The focus is on God in the midst of the attack, not on Satan and what he's trying to accomplish. Focus on the Lord. Focus on God and his purpose. Third, the confidence for victory depends on God, not my performance. So it's not necessarily just about, do I have enough faith? Do I say the right words to remove Satan or the demon from the situation? No, my focus is on God and the victory depends on the Lord's strength. That's why Paul says here in Ephesians 6, stand in the strength of the Lord. Not in your own strength, but in his vast might is how we stand. So the focus is on the Lord. So that means that the standard of evaluating success in a warfare moment, in an attack moment, is not whether or not I was able to cast the evil out, but did God accomplish his purpose? in what he allowed this warfare to happen for the per first place. So that's the implications of a sovereign God. Let's look at the flip side of the coin. What would be the implications if God is not sovereign? I see this view in some spiritual warfare books I've read, etc. They, they don't come out and say this, but it really looks at it from a perspective that God's not sovereign. God's not all-powerful. God's not in control of this. Although they wouldn't say that, that's just kind of the implication. So first, there would be no purpose in spiritual warfare, only random attacks from an enemy, the enemy. So Satan could just attack you anytime for whatever he wants to do, but we, don't, we see that's not biblical. We'll get to that here in just a moment. Secondly, the focus would have to be on Satan's evil plots, not God's purposes. We try to figure out, well, so what's Satan trying to do to me? Yeah, he's trying to destroy my family, my relationship with my kids, etc. And that's always our focus, instead of what's God trying to do through this. The confidence for victory would depend on me and my performance, not necessarily the Lord. And then lastly, the standard of evaluating success would depend on whether we were able 
to remove Satan or not. The first part of a biblical mindset in warfare is, remember, God is sovereign, which implies, number two, Satan is limited by God. We see this with Job. If you ever read the story of Job, it's a great story. But Old Testament, it's spelled like Job, but it's pronounced Job, right? If you just read just chapters one and two. So our family reading plan, we were in Job one and two this past week, and we read that. It's just a powerful reminder of God is truly sovereign. So, you know, so it starts in chapter one and where all the sons of God, which are the angels, are coming before God to, you know, kind of give their report and account of what they've been doing, serving the Lord. And, and Satan comes before the, the presence of God too. And, and God looks at Satan and says, where do you come from? And Satan says, I've just been roaming the earth to and fro. And, and God says, what about my servant Job? He is such a righteous man. You know, he, he does what is right. He does what is good. He's honorable. I'm paraphrasing. And then Satan says, well, sure, you've got this hedge of protection around him. No one can touch him. And Satan says, I guarantee if you were to remove that hedge of protection and let me at him, he would curse you to your face. So God says, very well. Because God had a greater purpose. So God said, okay, you may attack him. But then God gave him some parameters. You can't touch his person. You can't touch him physically. So it happens, right? So Satan could only inflict upon Job what God said he was going to allow him to inflict for God's overall purpose, which, of course, was to prune Job of any self-righteousness, which he had quite a bit. And through that process, God was successful in carrying out his purpose. But Satan was limited. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for you and me, a powerful promise where Paul says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to humanity. God is faithful. Just say that with me. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted. Oh, just listen to that. He will not allow. God is sovereign in control. Satan is limited. Satan is under, still under the sovereign authority of God. Isn't that awesome? So God will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able to withstand. So that's good news. The good news is God won't let you be tempted more than you can handle. Isn't that great news? Now, the bad news is, look how many times we've still failed anyway, right? That's the bad news. But he will not allow you. So we see this, this, this God is sovereign. It's not dualism. It's not yin and the yang. It's not equal and opposite forces. It is God is sovereign over Satan. And Satan's only going to allow, I'm sorry, God's only going to allow Satan to do to you that which God knows is going to accomplish his purpose of growing you into the image of Christ, Period. Which is great news. Also goes on, and he'll also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. So we see Satan is limited. And the third aspect of mindset is that we have three enemies. It's not always Satan. It's not always demons that's behind our issues and our attacks. We have two other enemies as well. Satan is an enemy. We've talked about him. He's an enemy. We see, again, 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter acknowledges the work of the devil against us. But we also have an enemy of the world. In a sense, the world is fallen. It's corruption. It's corrupt systems of humanity is an enemy. The, the way that sin has fractured creation and impacted creation so that we have coronavirus, so that we have tornadoes, hurricanes, cancer. All of this is our adversary against, against us, against the way God originally designed it and willed it to be. 
And we see James 4, where James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility for, uh, toward God? So whenever, whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Meaning, if you wanna buy into the corruption, you'll become a part of that. That's not good. First John chapter two says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world, for if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Be careful where our allegiances are, where our affections are. Our third enemy is probably our greatest enemy, and that's ourselves, our flesh. So, you know, a lot of times, what was the old guy's name, Flip Wilson, that said, the devil made me do it, right? Remember that? Some of you probably don't. It's all right. He did, just trust me. The devil didn't make you do it. So just turn to your neighbor and say, the devil didn't make you do it. He didn't. We do it ourselves. Look at what James says here in James chapter four. He says, what is, what is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? Ooh, does that sound familiar? Remember Paul in Romans 7? He says, I don't understand what I do because what I want to do, that's not what I do, but what I hate, that's what I end up doing. Remember that? Does that whole, you know, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third kind of routine. You know, and he's talking, he's kind of summarizes, he says, I just see that there's war raging in my members for in the inner man, in my spirit, I want to do good, but I find resisting me is my flesh, which is at war with the spirit. So it's this inner war that goes on within us. And so, you know, 95% of our sin problems is not Satan, it's not the world, it's me, right? It's me, my flesh. That's why we need to be rescued. He goes on and says, you, know, we, you desire and you don't have, you murder and covet and you cannot obtain, you fight and you war, but you don't have because you do not ask. Mindset, understanding the situation. But then, let her be here. We fight with our spiritual weapons. So what are our spiritual weapons? How do we use them as we battle? First, you cannot win a spiritual battle unless you have the Holy Spirit. You must be filled with the Spirit to win spiritual battles. I love what Paul says here in Galatians 5. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Battle. You can't win a spiritual battle unless you have the Holy Spirit. The only way to have the Holy Spirit is to have been given your life to Christ. When you trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And then to be filled with the Spirit is to walk in him daily. It's a daily thing. We must be filled with the Spirit daily when when in, in Ephesians chapter five, you know, Paul says, don't be drunk on wine, with be filled with this Holy Spirit. And that word that says be filled, it's, it's, it's the tense called, you know, imperfect. You keep on keeping on. It's like a continuous action. It's not a one-time completed action. It's an ongoing action. So every day we must continue to be filled with the Spirit as we surrender to Christ, as we follow Christ, as we, you know, let the Spirit lead us and guide us. We deny ourselves. We walk by the Spirit step by step, not according to the flesh. So, must have the Spirit. Secondly, must will the Word of God. The Word of God is our, is our weapon. You know, Ephesians chapter six, Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. The Hebrews author says, the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than the two-edged sword. 
We must use the Spirit. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by Satan, after fasting for 40 days, he's tempted. How many times is Jesus tempted by Satan? Three times, right? Three times. Every single time, how does Jesus respond to the temptation from Satan? With Scripture, with the Word of God. It's his sword, right? There's a, there's a great um, true story out about Lee Strobel. Some of you may know Lee Strobel. wrote some great books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. If you're, if you're having trouble, you know, grasping whether or not like the Bible is completely true. These are great books to read. So Lee Strobel was a, was a reporter, investigative reporter. He was an atheist, and he had had it with all this Christian stuff. He had had it with Christian friends. So he was going to be the hero. He was going to set out once and for all to show the Bible to be false, to be flawed, to be erred. And so he began his whole process of studying and doing research, conducting interviews, you know, looking at archaeological finds and just all this other things as he went through manuscripts, archaeology, um, you know, prophecy, scripture statistics. He was going through all of this stuff to, to show and prove the Bible's false. And in the process, he gave his life to Christ. And now he's one of the greatest advocates for the reality and the truthfulness and inerrancy and uh, the authenticity of Scripture because he encountered the weapon of God, the sword of the Spirit, the willed, the Word of God. That's why we're so adamant that you all, we read the Word of God daily because, you know, equip yourself. You know, going into spiritual battle without ever reading or studying or knowing the Word of God is like one of our soldiers going into battle without any weapons, no ammunition, nothing, just, just going in there like this. Right? What's that going to do against an enemy tank? Not a thing. Not a thing. So go into battle. Be, be armed. Study the word. Know the word. Number three is standing in the strength of Christ. And that's what, that's what Paul says here. It's not on our own. It's, not, it's why we have to have the spirit of God. It's not on our own, but stand in the Lord's vast strength. Right here, verse, in the, in verse 13 says, you must take on the full armor of God. It's God's armor. So you may be able to resist in the evil day, having prepared everything. Take your stand. It's in the Lord's strength. And he unpacks what the armor of God is. We're not going to go through all that in detail, but he talks about the belt of truth. Truth holds everything together. The, the shoes of the gospel of peace. We're to use our feet to go and take the gospel. We have the, the breastplate of righteousness guarding our hearts so that we're, we're living lives of holiness and righteousness. And what's in our hearts is what God honors God. The helmet of salvation, where salvation changes how we think. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word of God will change your mind about how we see things. We'll get a biblical worldview. That's the helmet of salvation. We have the shield of faith, which extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy. And we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and then prayer. So stand in the strength of Christ. And number four, stand on the authority of Christ. Interesting passage here in Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 says, But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace you are saved. Don't miss this. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. One author says about this, us being seated together with Christ. What does that mean? It says, seated together, sitting together with Jesus implies 
that we are reigning with him on the throne, that God has actually given us his authority, the right to rule with him. Now, does that mean we just go around and start rebuking everything and we, we want to and we can, but it doesn't always gonna work, right? Or if we can't remove Satan, does that mean we're just weak Christians? Not exactly. Look at, look at this in scripture. So let's do some comparisons. On the one hand, you have Jesus who said, away from me, Satan, and Satan fled. But also this same Jesus allowed the devil to hang around for 40 days and tempt him. We have Jesus who cast legion of demons out of the demoniac at Gadarenes. We talked about that in Mark chapter 5. We also have the same Jesus who then allowed those demons to go into pigs and destroy part of his creation. We have God who built a hedge of protection around Job, but then turned right around and removed that hedge of protection. We have God who promised to deliver one church from the trial coming on the whole earth and to make those who are the synagogue of Satan bow at their feet, Revelation 3, is the same God who just right after that warns another church that the devil would persecute them and throw them into prison. We have Paul who cast out a spirit in Acts chapter 16, but then was given a messenger of Satan that tormented him the rest of his life. We have demon presence sometimes were immediately removed and cast away in scripture, but occasionally demonic presence are continued to be present for an extended amount of time, such as a slave girl in Acts chapter 16. Sometimes deliverance is immediate, other times the saints are required to endure. Why? Why the, why the differences? Does that mean that Paul had good days and bad days, and on his good day he cast them out in one time, but he had a lot of bad days because he couldn't get her the own, the own messenger of Satan that was hurting him. Does that mean Saul was, I mean, Paul was deficient? No, we got to remember, what is the big goal of warfare? The purpose is not to remove Satan, but to accomplish God's will. And sometimes God's will is accomplished through what Satan does. Greatest example of that is the cross. Satan's ultimate goal to kill and destroy God's plan of redemption became the greatest way that God won and rescued us. Amen? You see how that works? So, sometimes we may as believers stand on Christ's authority, you know, rebuke the enemy, and have victory. Sometimes God's got to, gonna use the enemy for his purpose in our life. The fifth is praying in the Spirit. We've talked about that before. I mean, just being led by the Spirit as we pray, the Holy Spirit giving us insight on what to pray and how to pray and how to engage. We did a whole message on that not long ago. Number six, this is a big one, is immersion in the body of Christ. Another way we fight. And here I want to bring back 1 Peter 5 again. Uh, we've read this before. We've actually talked about this before in here. But be sober on the earth. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting to see who can devour. Man. So here, Peter takes the example of the devil hunting the same way a lion, it's always a lioness, the ladies do the hunting in the lion kingdom. The ladies do the hunting, but how do they hunt? Who do they look for when they're hunting, hunting a herd of wildebeest? Do they run right into the middle of the herd? No, they get the stragglers, right? They get the strag the weak, those that are separated. So important for you to be immersed in the body of Christ. Can't tell you how many times I've seen this. How many times a person or a family 
at one time were really involved in the life of the church. You know, they're plugged in, they're in small groups, they're studying the word, they're serving together, but something happens and they get a little disconnected. And man, it goes south from there. One, one story, so Karen and I, we, we planted a church and I don't know, about the first year or so, we met this young couple and um, they were about to get married. In fact, I did their wedding. And uh, I'm not gonna tell their names, I'll just call them Bob and Betty. So Bob and Betty got married and they were just a neat, they got, he, Bob got radically saved by the gospel. He had been a cocaine addict and he was only like 21, 22 years old. He'd already been a cocaine addict, alcoholic. He had a rough, rough life and God just radically saved him. It was a great st- story. Betty, she was a beautiful girl. She was a, had a beautiful singing voice. She was excited to get plugged into the church. And so they got married. They became part of our church. And, man, they started to grow. Bob had a hunger for the word. He just couldn't get enough of the word. He was growing by leaps and bounds and understanding and just had an incredible testimony. He was starting to share his story with people he'd encounter at work. And uh, he kind of owned his own business. So he'd have different clients. He was just quick to share his story. They were just really growing and growing and growing. In fact, four years later, he became one of our small group leaders, and you know, he was actually starting to talk about how maybe the God was calling him to be a church planter and go start a church in another part of, of Nashville, and it was just exciting to see what God was doing in their life. Then, the church, we decided as a church plant that God was calling us to merge with another existing church, and I know this is going to be shocking to you, but not everyone agreed with that. I know, I know we always agree on everything, right? Well, they didn't really agree. They didn't really like that move. And so they kind of took a step back from us and began to maybe visit this church or that church. And within like a month or so, they said, let's just take a break. And say he didn't go to church anywhere. Fast forward six months. He relapsed. He's back on cocaine. By this time, they had two just incredibly beautiful kids. He just checked out. One of our elders tried to go meet with him and reason with him, but showed up, he was high and had a pistol, so I would have done the same thing. He, I'm not spending too much time there. <laughs> it's just a tragic story. It all happened when what? They took a step back from the herd. They took a step out of the pack, and I've seen this so many times, you guys, in church life, not just there, but here. People take a step back, you become a target because there's safety in the herd. And when you're saved, it is God's intention for you to be immersed into the body of Christ. That's the picture of baptism, right? We baptize in water physically, but like in Galatians chapter three, it says all of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized into one body. It's not talking about water there. It's talking about your, your immersion into Christ, into the body of Christ. There is purpose for that. God knows you need to be in the safety of the herd. You need to be in the safety of the pack. You need to be safe in the body of Christ because once you straggle, once you get detached, you're a target. That adversary, he is right there. She is a lioness, and she's licking her chops. She's got her eye on you, and on your own, you cannot withstand. We can't underestimate Satan. I mean, in the book of Jude, the archangel Michael dare not raise an accusation against Satan when they were contending over Moses, but he just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. It's a reminder. We are better together. Amen? We need it. And that's just why right now it's so dangerous. COVID is so dangerous for so many. 
because it is so tempting to take that step back and say, well, I'm not going to tune in today online or, you know, I'm not going to attend this or attend that. It's so dangerous, so dangerous. Stay connected to the body. Stay connected. Lastly, proclaim. Proclaim the gospel. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You go back to 2 Corinthians 4, and we talked about the God of this age with Satan, how he has blinded those who are perishing with this veil so they cannot see. What is powerful enough to remove that veil? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, we are all rescued by Christ for the purpose of being a part of his rescue plan for others. That's how this whole thing works, right? We are the rescued, therefore we're called to go and bring the hope and the gospel of rescue to others. That's how God has chosen to bring rescue, is through the rescued, which is us. Well, as we close, I want to show you a picture, and this is a real picture. Um, it's not an easy picture to look at, but for me, this picture really captures spiritual warfare. Uh, this picture was taken in 1993 uh, by a, a photojournalist named Kevin Carter. He was um, tasked originally to go to South Africa and, you know, kind of take a photo journey of apartheid there and show the horrors of apartheid. And, and then about the same time, the big famine broke out in Sudan. And so he was reassigned to Sudan. And so one day he was on his way from a village called Ayod in, in Sudan to the UN station. And as he was walking through the woods, through the bush, there was a kind of a clearing over to his left, and he heard whimpering. He went over there, and he saw this, and he took a picture. And as he took a picture, um, the vulture landed. It's a real picture. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this picture in 1990, spring of 94. And he was told, um, as a guy's a humanitarian or photojournalist, that he was not supposed to touch any of the indigenous people for risk of transferring of disease. So he's in this predicament where he took this picture, and as he was about to click, the vulture landed. What do you do? He did not help the little girl. Of course, the picture's made. It becomes famous. He wins a Pulitzer, and of course, everyone sees a picture. What's the first thing they ask? What happened to the little girl? Did you help her? So she was crawling. The UN feeding center was 2,000 feet in front of her. She was crawling for food. And the vulture landed. Well, he didn't help. So he won the Pulitzer in the spring of 94. July of 94, Kevin Carter took his own life. He couldn't live with that. So I look at this picture. I actually printed it off and hanging it by my door in my office on my way out. So I see this every single day to remind me there's a lot of little girls. There's a lot of little toddlers in our world that need the gospel. Satan, the enemy, the vultures, is standing right there. He's seeking to devour. We are called to rescue we are called to be a part of God's rescue project. Not to just stand by and come up with all kinds of excuses why not to help. Why not to go pick up the little girl and carry her 2,000 feet so she could have food. We're called to engage. We're called to take risks. 
I mean, nowhere in the scripture do you say, does it say, you shall take no risk and just be safe. You see that? How many times in scripture do you see that? Zero. You see go. And throughout the entire history of the church, there have been men and women fueled by the Holy Spirit, emboldened with the gospel to go where it's not safe because people need to hear the rescue message of Jesus and be rescued by Jesus. We're not called to play it safe. If your pursuit is comfort, that is one of the greatest spiritual attacks on the American church is our pursuit of comfort. We're not called to be comfortable. If comfort's your aim, you are not walking in obedience to Christ. If comfort is your aim, you are not being filled with spirit and walking in the spirit. I'm not saying if you have comforts, it's bad. But if that's your goal, that's not God's goal. Kind of goes back to what Denise said in her testimony. Where does Satan attack? He attacks where the gospel's going forward. Where there are risks being taken. Where there are steps being made. Where people are going to the uncomfortable and doing the uncomfortable because they love Jesus and, they, and they're heartbroken because of the toddlers. They're heartbroken because of the lost people in our world who need Jesus. They're heartbroken over the, the way that people suffer today, the oppression, the poverty, or the lostness. They're so moved by that. They've got to do something. I can't just stand by and watch this and do nothing. That's exactly what the American church has been doing for too long. Yes, we are in a battle, and our enemies manifested as apathy and complacency and fear. It's time to get bold in the spirit. It's time to take the gospel, to be part of God's rescue project, to bring the gospel to all those who don't know it. I don't want to win a Pulitzer Prize. I want to be a part of God saving a little girl. Amen? You know, we got to be taking risks. We're starting a new campus this year, Lord willing. That's a risk. There's no guarantee it's going to explode with growth. We've got to take risks for the gospel's sake. We can't just be complacent. We can't not try things because of fear. We've got to be bold with the gospel. Trust God and follow him. You've got to be bold in your life, at work, in your family. Share the gospel. Live out the gospel. Stand firm. Don't be complacent or apathetic. Stand against the enemy's tactics. His tactics for the American church is comfort and complacency and confusion. Let's, let, let's not let him win. Let's not let him win. Let's stand and fight. Stand with me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us. Lord, we just pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We may stand strongly in your word and your armor and stand against the tactics of the enemy, but be victorious. Lord, you tell us in your word that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means we are on the offensive, that we go and we proclaim and we serve and we make a big impact with the power of your gospel, the power of your word, the power of your spirit in us. So, Lord, move us. Give us that boldness, and, and God, direct us so that we can honor you in how we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.